Live from historic Fort Andros in downtown Brunswick, your way to wake up on the Midcoast. The Midcoast Morning Buzz, WCME. Hi, I'm Jim Blakemp. Welcome to the Best of the Buzz, the periodic Saturday series on which we repeat some of our prime interviews during the week on the WCME Midcoast Morning Buzz and some other moments you might have missed. Pete Slavinsky is a coastal geologist with Maine Geological Survey, a part of the State Department of Conservation. And twice in recent years, once in Freeport and again this week in Brunswick, I've seen and heard Pete gain and hold the quite rapt attention of audiences with the information and perspective that he offers on how sea level rise and climate change are already very directly impacting on us here on the Midcoast. Pete recently made a presentation before a large group of over 30 state legislators. This week, just after he spoke to members of Brunswick's Rivers and Coastal Waters Commission, I spent about a half hour talking with Pete and He was kind enough not to walk away when I asked one question that he preferred I would not have asked. You'll hear that coming up. You heard a part of this interview on the Thursday WCME Midcoast Morning Buzz, but now myself and Pete Slavinsky in our entirety on the best of the buzz from WCME. I mean, my expertise, of course, is in, in, you know, sea level rise and storm surge and things like that. Um, But in terms of sea level rise, it's something that we're already seeing. You know, there's been a, a rise in the rate over the last 100 years of about 8 inches, 9 inches, 10 inches per century. Um, and that's a rate of about 1.92 millimeters per year. And over the last 25 years, that's increased to about 3, 3.1 millimeters per year. So about a foot per century now. Um, and, the, you know, as we look into the future, a lot of these scenarios um, – they stay relatively close together up until about 2040, 2050, and then they start to diverge. And that's, you know, next 20 years, roughly. Um, we're looking at a divergence in those scenarios where you go from, you know, your low scenario, which would continue out to about a foot by the year 2100, to much higher scenarios in the four to six to eight foot range even. Um, but, you know, all that being said, you know, most folks think of sea level rise as this thing that's, again, something slow that's not happening for another decade or two decades or even five, six decades from now. But we have abrupt changes that can occur uh, in in a given year. I mean, for example, in 2010, um, there were a variety of factors that came into play that actually led to a five to six inches rise in sea level along the entire east coast of the United States, most pronounced in the Gulf of Maine because of the way we're kind of sheltered in the Gulf of Maine. Um, And when you have superimposed water on top of your regular tidal levels and then you get storms on top of that they're going to be acting on areas of the coastline that they typically don't act upon so higher up on beaches higher up on dunes higher up on bluffs which leads to increased erosion so the you know the the fact that you can have these abrupt changes in sea level is something that we don't really consider a lot when we're thinking about these things from a planning standpoint we're thinking about you know let's think about it in the next 10 years or 20 years, how we're going to adapt to these things. Um, and at the same time, along the coast of Maine, there's only a one-foot difference between our 10-year storm or our 
the, the storm that has a 10% chance of occurring in any given year and our 100-year storm, or one that has a 1% chance of occurring in a given year. So if we have sea levels that are six inches higher, you know, just abruptly, you're already that much closer to reaching those larger storm events. And if we have one foot of sea level rise, for instance, your 10-year event, 10 event becomes your 100-year event in terms of its impact. So there's a multiplier impact. Uh, I guess you could call it that. I mean, you know, as we go, f the, and, and as you go farther into the future with some of these scenarios, the curve, you know, we're, I've been talking about these trends based on linear trends. The trend based on these scenarios becomes more exponential as you go out uh, potentially into the future. When you use the word abrupt, as you have several times here, that sounds like uh, this is largely unpredictable. Um, you know, I don't know how predictable some of this stuff is because what we're learning is after the fact, learning what's driving some of these things. But so, so I guess sometimes some scientists out there, which were much smarter than myself and, and work with this stuff probably more often than myself, um, might be able to come up with some of these abrupt change predictors. So like, what do we look for when we know that the Gulf Stream might slow down, which is one of the causes of these abrupt changes? We you know we can predict uh, on a somewhat regular basis what potentially is happening with the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is the way pressure systems set up over Azores and, the, and Greenland, um, w whether it's a positive phase or a negative phase. And when it's a negative phase, that may result in atmospheric conditions that allow for uh, low pressure w winds, basically, to, to blow along the east coast of the United States and also allows for that we call it polar vortex, but the jet, jet stream to dip way south and for nor'easters to come up the coast. So when we see that happening, we would know that there's a more higher potential for this abrupt change, quote, end quote, um, of sea level potentially to be higher. And, but if not, there's at least the potential for northeast storms to be steered right up our coastline. So we would see increased nor'easters. Just speaking uh, very locally, what do you see for Brunswick-Freeport, say, over the next uh, decade that might be of a particular note? I think one of the things that would be pretty interesting is uh, both of those communities um, to have a very large recreational and commercial shellfish harvesting. Um, and, you know, I wonder, and I'm not a biologist, so I don't know, but I wonder how higher water levels would potentially be impacting this. I don't know, you know, would the types of shellfish potentially change because of more water on there? You know, so an area that drains out completely now might not drain out in the future. Um, and at the same time, I think one of the bigger questions from a biological standpoint is ocean acidification. So, you know, as, as pH rises, um, you know, what's gonna be potentially happening to the shell, the maker, the, the ability of these shellfish to make their shells. And also, of course, um, you know, when we do have higher water levels, potentially we could, we could be introducing more pollutants. And so our water quality could potentially be an issue um, for, for the same thing. So, but from a, you know, from that standpoint, I wonder about that. And then I also wonder from a, um, a, a biological standpoint, kind of a geomorphological standpoint, you know, how some of our existing habitats are going to react to um, increases in sea level and potential more frequent storms like marshes. You know, how is the marsh going to respond? And as a marsh becomes more and more inundated, the species on that marsh will change. So right now about most of Maine's marsh, larger marsh systems are made up of about 70% high marsh, which is 
Spartina patens and about 30% low marsh, which is Spartina alterniflora. It's that tall cord grass you see adjacent to river channels, while the patens is kind of like that matted, hairy stuff that's on the upper part of the marsh. Well, as the patent, that likes to get only inundated at the highest tides of the year. As you see more frequent inundation, you would expect those species to potentially change. And that could have an impact also on um, some of the nesting birds, like salt marsh sparrow, that just nest in the high marsh. You talk about uh, you're, you're wondering about uh, what will happen. You're talking about possible scenarios. It sounds like there's a lot, again, it's just not particularly predictable here. You're going to learn as, as it happens. Uh, well, I, would say, I think that would be the case for some of the uh, abrupt changes. Um, you know, like I said, uh, there's folks a lot smarter than myself that are doing some of the atmospheric science and, and uh, you know, some of the glacial and uh, ice mass science, that's ice, ice sheet science that's going on. That's one of the big driving things that's almost changing on a daily basis is our understanding of the contribution that Antarctica and Greenland are playing to these. And unfortunately, most of the times when you read something, it tends towards the higher end than it does the lower end. Um, because there's a, you know, the technologies that are being used to monitor and understand what's happening on these gigantic ice sheets um, is, is getting better and better all the time. You know, with the advent of RTK GPS, which is a very precise positioning technique which can be used, we can get movement rates of these things. You know, game cameras are being set up, even it's just GoPro cameras. So we understand how these things are changing. And then one of the other factors that is really starting to get a, folks are starting to get a good handle on from the scientific community is the lubrication of these ice sheets from the bottom. So as they melt, they actually lubricate themselves on the bottom adjacent to the rock or bedrock that it's resting on. And that actually speeds up the melting of the ice sheet. The other thing that is 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 a, a known contributor now to some of the changes that we're seeing are gravitational effects. So as the mass of Antarctica and Greenland decreases, which it is, um, the gravitational pull of the ice sheet also decreases. So sea levels adjacent to Antarctica potentially would fall. However, they would go up elsewhere in the in the North Atlantic. So those are getting, uh, the, that kind of factor is being understood more. And at the same time, the role, like I was saying about the Gulf Stream and ocean circulation is also being understood more because, you know, sea levels are not just static around the whole world. They um, are, are influenced by, again, terrestrial water storage, what the land is doing in relation to the water, um, to ocean circulation. So these different currents that are driving things. And as those currents are changing, sea level changes. You indicated a concern about, uh, you know, how the shellfishing industries off the coast of Brunswick and, and Freeport might be further affected. I know there's already a lot of tension in those industries about what's already happened and what might happen. But you also talked here tonight about how certain towns in Maine that are totally dependent on the coast for their mm -hmm. for their economies, you're particularly concerned about those. Yeah. So, you know, we don't you know, Maine is known for its its lobster fishery and our dependence upon the marine economy, whether it's for moving trans transportation stuff around ferries or if it's, you know, actually related to commercial fisheries. Um, and a lot of those commercial fisheries are based in some of our island communities, and they depend on, you know, working waterfronts, basically, um, for 
for their livelihood. Those folks depend on working waterfronts for their livelihoods. And working waterfronts, by definition, have to be on the waterfront. Um, so, you know, the infrastructure that's there uh, a lot of times is built very, very low, and it's built in areas that are subject to flooding. And sometimes when they're constructed, they're not built in a way that's resilient to the kind of inundation that you can potentially see. So, you know, areas that now are seeing nuisance flooding where, you know, at the highest tides, the parking lot, for instance, gets overtopped and commercial fishermen have to move somewhere else to park, for instance. That's right now, it's a, it's a nuisance. But as that becomes more and more frequent, that becomes larger than a nuisance. And at the same time, the equipment that's all these, on these piers and wharves, a lot of them are not adapt, adapted to take into account increased flooding or higher flood levels. Um, so, you know, how do we take that kind of infrastructure and how do we adapt it so that it can continue to be working um, and located on the waterfront, yet be resilient to the changes that we're potentially seeing in the future? You talked a lot about erosion uh, here this evening, and if there if there were one particularly striking statement, and you made a number of them, I would say, over the fence tower, but one in particular, you said that if you're uh, a shoreline property buyer these days, you cannot uh, bank on the piece of property you may be buying still existing in I don't know how many years. Yeah, I mean, it all depends on the location and where you are and things like that. But I think when, you know, inherently when we purchase something, uh, whether it's a piece of property or something, we, we expect it to kind of stay the same unless it's made to change. But um, if we're buying a piece of property, you know, we we survey in our property lines and we expect them to stay the same. And, uh, you know, we're kind of entering, you know, there's always been coastal erosion that's been happening, always. I mean, you, I, I could show you sea level changes where sea levels have changed 60 meters over a period of 2,000 years instead of the changes that we're seeing now. Um, but, you know, we humanity has wasn't so dependent upon living along the coastline like we are right now. Um, and we've built a lot of our towns, a lot of our infrastructure, a lot of our cities right on the water. Because who doesn't want to live by the water? It's a wonderful place to live. Um, but, again, I think we have to realize that there might be a new dynamic that we're approaching where, you know, your property is going to change if it's adjacent to... Uh, you know, an unconsolidated bluff, or if it's adjacent to a beach or a dune, uh, or adjacent to a marsh. You know, these are dynamic features which formed when sea levels were different, and they formed under different changes of sea level rise rates, especially marshes and dunes and beaches, uh, which are the most dynamic of these features. You know, when you have coastal bluffs, they've formed, and they go one way. They go inland. They're in response to erosion. They don't come back in our lifetimes. Um, so that's a different factor than, say, a beach or a dune or a marsh, which can that edge can change over time. I mean, marshes a little bit less so, but like beaches and dunes, you know, you go up to Popham Beach, you see 600 feet of dune change in a period of a decade. Um, so you know, some of these features are already really dynamic, so it doesn't make sense to be right on them <laughs> at times. Um, some of these features, like these coastal bluffs, which are prevalent in you know this area of Casco Bay, again, the changes we're seeing. It's a one-way direction. They're not growing seaward. They're simply going in one direction. They're, they're responding to erosion by going landward. Um, so the concept of holding the line on a lot of these is what folks are approaching because that's typically what we want to do. But the, the drawback of that is when you are constructing something to try to maintain that line, the, we cut off the sediment supply from the bluff to the wetland or to the mudflat. 
So all these commercial, commercially viable mudflats that we have in Brunswick, for instance, they're almost all derived from erosion of adjacent bluffs. So if you cut off the sediment supply to a bluff by, or for, to the mudflat by stabilizing the entire edge of a bluff, you're going to be cutting off the sediment supply to that mudflat. So over time, that mudflat will get lower in response to its sediment supply being cut off. Um, so, you know, it, if you look at it from a property-by-property property basis, it doesn't seem like much. But if you look at it as a cumulative impact, it can have a pretty big impact. Jim Blykamp here. You're hearing a special edition of The Best of the Buzz, my interview earlier this week with coastal geologist Pete Slavinsky from the Maine Geological Survey, talking about the current and short-term impact of sea level rise and climate change on all of us here on the Midcoast. And beginning right now, some of what you did not hear earlier this week on The Best of the Buzz from WCME. The Buzz. WCME. We are hearing an awful lot of dire and harsh warnings about climate change in general and about some of the particulars these days, and you've uh, given us some, some more tonight, but it always seems to me that uh, there are a, a lot of people, and maybe this is just uh, well-meaning or there are some uh, unknown reasons why we hear a lot of dire warnings, but a lot of people don't really want to go all the way and necessarily classify it as an emergency. Would you class... Uh, what we're looking at now is an emergency situation. Um, that's a good question. You know, I think it's kind of a phased emergency. <laughs> um, you what know, is a phased emergency? Well, you know, there there are certain things that we can do that are, um, you know, little little things that would help these natural systems that we're talking about and the infrastructure that we're talking about. Um, that you know, if we get it wrong, for instance, uh, and sea level doesn't rise you know, four feet or six feet or whatever the scenario might be, um, that you're still going to be that much more resilient to storms, for instance. So, you know, little simple things like elevating your property. If you're in a flood zone, uh, you know, instead of going, most municipalities have base flood elevation uh, associated with their municipal floodplain management ordinances of one foot above base flood elevation. That's the minimum standard. Some communities are going to two. Some communities are going to three feet. So that makes... Your, your infrastructure more resilient to inundation. It makes it more resilient to, you know, potential future sea level rise. Uh, and also it results in a lower, if you have flood insurance, it lowers in a, or results in a lower flood insurance policy. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, from a mitigation standpoint, uh, and again, I don't study mitigation and climate change, but uh, I really focus much more on adaptation. But from a mitigation standpoint, I think a lot of the climate scientists would, would say we probably are in an emergency um, and we need to start doing something because these different goals associated with the climate scenarios that are out there um, assume that peak emissions stop by 2020. That's one of them. The next assumes that peak emissions stop by 2040 and then we mitigate substantially after that. 2040 is only 21 years away. And then another one I think uses 2060 or 2080, and then another scenario is business as usual out into the future. So I think those folks that study that stuff would argue that we do need, you know, you do, we do have some drastic changes we need to make pretty quickly. It's interesting to hear you use the words adaptation and mitigation. There's a contrast between those mm -hmm. uh, two words. and You just said you're focused on adaptation, and it sounds to me like you're you're looking uh, at a situation in which we're in for a notably uh, different kind of climate for many years to come, and mitigation 
isn't necessarily going to have much impact. That's what it sounds like. No, not at all. I mean, I think mitigation w deals with the underlying climate problem. Um, and it's something that, you know, it, you have to undertake on a large scale to be successful. Um, the adaptation is something that we're, we're adapting to our existing commission conditions, but also thinking about the future conditions. So I don't think we're very resilient to existing storms, for instance. You know, we could be, we, we could be doing much better uh, given, given the damages we see in these really large storm events. I mean, you think of the storms of March of last year in the southern coast. It got hammered. I mean, millions of dollars of damages in, in the southern coastal communities. Patriot's Day storm, same thing. February, February 1978, Nor'easter, same thing. You know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars of damage. So, you know, I, I, I think that um, we certainly could do better adapting to existing hazards, not let alone potential future hazards. But we're not doing much in terms of mitigation, really, are we? Probably not enough. Um, you know, no. I don't know what the I don't know what Brunswick is doing in terms of mitigation. Well, I'm process. talking about on a, on a national and international level. Um, you know, there are different accords that are out there that uh, communities are signing on, or not communities, nations are signing on to, and there's numerous cities uh, in the United States that have signed on to, to I think, meet a goal of 50% reduction by the year 2050 and things like that. Um, in Maine, you know, there's the formation of a climate change committee that, that that's coming on that that's under uh, Governor Mills, um, and uh, there's, a, a, I think, 33 individuals that will be on that, along with a bunch of technical advisors and formation, looking at coastal and inland energy, all that stuff. So the mitigation part would be taken into account there in terms of what Maine can do in terms of that. And then, the, of course, looking at the adaptation is another thing, because we have to adapt to, again, like I said, existing conditions and the future ones. But mitigation is really going to be really, really an important thing when we're looking at the, you know, the role that greenhouse gases play in these, fact in, in these things. How much have you been able to do at the uh, state level and to what extent are you satisfied with your performance based on, on reality? Um, you know, the, it's, it's interesting. Um, over the last 10 years, I think Maine actually did quite a bit in terms of uh, really trying to put together a lot of tools that are available for the public um, to view and understand uh, some of the impacts of climate change from a sea level rise scenario standpoint, from coastal hazards like potential landfalling hurricanes to storm surge to um, you know, a variety of these different, different tools we put out there. And we've also been able to undertake um, a lot of vulnerability assessments and adaptation strategy planning um, at a municipal level, because Maine is a home rule state, you know, it's it's it. A lot of the times, the municipalities will go and do things that they want to do, regardless of what's happening at the state level. And vulnerability assessments and coastal hazards are things that continue, regardless of what happens at the state level. Uh, so, a lot of municipalities have been interested in moving this forward um, at the municipal level. So, I think I said it earlier, but one of the things that I think we've kind of created right now is what we call a patchwork of resiliency where you've got Community A, who is right next to Community B. They're, right, they're both coastal communities. Community A is really interested in this stuff, has dedicated time, staff, and money to thinking about these things, while Community B has done nothing at that time. So that's where the state overview comes in, in terms of you know trying to pull together the science, trying to pull together some standards that could move forward at the state level. Um, that's something we haven't done in the past, but I think we will at this point. I know you're a 
state employed geologist, you're not a political appointee of the state, but it sounds like uh, you're saying that you've been able to get uh, quite a bit done, or at least something of a substantive nature done, even under the administration of a governor for whom this was not a priority. Not sure I'm going to answer that one. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let me. Wait, I have to ask it. I, well, I, I mean, the way the way I tried to approach that was with my previous answer, which was, um, I think there always is an interest in uh, approaching coastal hazards. It all, a lot of it comes down to messaging. Um, you know, we are, like I said, we're already not resilient enough to existing coastal hazards. Um, so. The way you can approach thinking about that problem is this doesn't necessarily need to be climate change related. It can be coastal hazard related. It can be, you know, whatever, however you want to term it. Uh, the idea of resiliency, the ability to bounce back, is something that is, is very, very vital, I think, to the way we need to think about these problems. And, um, again, the ability, we are a home rule state, so municipalities have moved forward with this issue with support from the state. Um, you know, now I think that we'd be able to provide a lot more support than we have in the past. Uh, but, you know, again, the state resources right now are limited. There are only a certain amount of number of people working on these things. Um, a lot of, of some of this has been moved forward by partnerships that we've developed with other uh, organizations like the University of Maine, uh, the Island Institute has really stepped forward and put together a uh, sea level rise planning team and they put together some really interesting videos about education about sea level rise and they're they've been a really good partner in terms of working with engaging island communities um, through you know working working through these problems so uh, different partnerships are certainly important in moving this forward as well to put that last question perhaps in in a different light is, is it fair to say that you're encouraged by the emphasis that the new governor is is putting on climate change uh, I'm certainly encouraged. Yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, a pretty important thing for the state of Maine to be thinking about as we're moving into the future because, um, you know, we don't want to be left behind by the other states, and it also takes a concerted approach uh, by numerous states really to 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 move this issue forward. And you know, we've and again, I'm not a, a greenhouse gas guy, but you know, Maine has been involved for a long time in Reggie, the regional. I don't even remember what it stands for. The re regional. Um, Anyway, it's a New England consortium about uh, emissions. And I don't remember what Reggie stands for, but you could look it up. Um, uh, so, so Maine's always been kind of at the forefront with that in terms of that. And, you know, we've also followed uh, Massachusetts and California in terms of pollution standards. Uh, so we've we've always kind of been working as a, as a team on a lot of these things. So um, we've been, you know, some of these projects we work on as a region as well with other New England states. So... Um, I, I certainly am encouraged uh, that you know we're, we're moving forward at the administrative level of assigning a climate change committee and, 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 and bringing uh, different commissioners in to work on that and different representatives from the different state agencies and different um, NGOs and also some of the different uh, organizations throughout the state uh, to bring together folks to talk about the aspect of mitigation and adaptation, not just adaptation. And there you have it, state geologist Pete Slavinsky. He's a coastal geologist in Brunswick earlier this week, talking at some length about the present-day impact and near-term impact of sea level rise and climate change on us here on the mid-coast of Maine. We've taken some time this morning to present the interview in its entirety because I thought you would want me to do that. The best of the buzz. 
And we hope you'll join us every weekday for the Midcoast Morning Buzz next edition Memorial Day morning, 6 till 9 on 99.5 WCMA.